Great job on that. It, it's harder than it looks to stand up here and remember your name, <laughs> where you graduated from high school and what you're doing next. So good job. Well, if human history were a book, if human history were a book, I think it's accurate biblically to say that we are living in the next to the last chapter of that book. The last chapter of human history, it's sometimes called the consummation or the restoration of all things. There will come a day when God, through Jesus Christ, will restore redeemed humanity and all of creation to the glory that we had before the fall. And so believers in Jesus Christ will be instantaneously at the return of Christ, uh, uh, conformed to the image of Christ, and will be given glorious resurrected bodies akin to Jesus' resurrected bodies. And all of creation itself, something similar, the heaven and earth will become the new heaven and the new earth. And so God is bringing human history to this goal or this end. And that's the last chapter. But we are living in the next to the last chapter. We are living in the days when the end of all things, the goal of all things, is near. And sometimes this last chapter is called the last days. The New Testament often calls it the last days. And uh, Peter said this, this is today's passage, 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is near. The last chapter is near. Therefore, this is how you should live. Peter tells us, you are living in this strategic time right before the end of all things. And we don't know how long this last chapter is, right? The, the writers of the New Testament, they, they really felt like the return of Christ would be soon, perhaps in their lifetime. So we don't know how long this chapter is. But Peter says, we're living in this strategic time. Therefore, understand where you are in the plot of human history and live accordingly. Karen Jobes wrote this in her commentary on 1 Peter. She said, Peter is saying that because his readers are living in the last stage of a divinely initiated process, whose outcome has already been assured by the resurrection of Jesus, their behavior should reflect that reality. And so today we're going to talk about the behavior that's compatible with living in this next to the last chapter in human history. Now, what does that behavior look like? If you didn't know any better, you might guess, well, since we're living in these last days, maybe we should all quit our jobs and we should live at some frenetic spiritual pace. We should get so revved up because we don't know when the end will actually come. Actually, the New Testament warns against that mindset. Read 2 Thessalonians 3 sometimes. It says, don't do that. Actually, Peter's going to say, since we live in the, uh, the, since the end of all things is near, we should excel in four basic spiritual practices. And so he's going to talk about prayer, love, hospitality, and uh, what's the last one? Servanthood, right? You're looking at your bulletins. Uh, prayer, love, uh, hospitality, and servanthood. You might say, really? That, that's it? That's how we live in the end times? Well, actually, those practices, if practiced as a body, they are powerful. They give us a type of vitality and life. They give us a unity that nothing else has. And as a byproduct, it gives us a witness that is more compelling than just having the right answers. And so this is vital for our unity and for our power as a witness. And so we're gonna work our way through this, this passage 
And it might be profitable for you to invite the Holy Spirit to highlight one of these four practices that he wants you to work on, that he wants it to be characteristic of your life in this, this season. It's better to go deep and substantive in one area than stay superficial in a lot of different areas. So what if there's one, maybe two of these that the Spirit would point out for you? And so keep that in mind as we go along. First, if we understand that the end of all things is, is at hand, our lives will be characterized by prayer. Notice how Peter uses the word therefore to denote that he's giving an implication of the fact that the end of all things is near. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, this is the implication, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. These two terms, sound judgment and sober spirit, they're very similar in meaning, and Peter's probably meaning to, to give one basic thought. Think rightly and clear-mindedly. And so if you have sound judgment, you think rightly about a situation. Mark used this term in Mark 5.15 when he was talking about the man that was delivered from this legion of demons. Mark's comment was that he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. He had sound judgment once again. He could think, he could think rightly about life now have sober judgment or sound judgment and be of sober spirit. And so if you're sober, your mind is clear. Your mind is not clouded and confused the way it would be if you were intoxicated. And so together, these terms paint the picture of a person who's thinking rightly and clearly, uh, especially about these last days. And Peter writes, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The implication is that you and I will not pray, or at the very least, we won't pray well if our thinking is muddled and unclear and if our minds are not, are not uh, focused on the right thing. If we're sloppy and confused in our thinking, we'll find a hundred more important things to do than prayer. And most of those, many of those are good things but we won't find the time and we won't expend the spiritual and emotional energy needed to bear in, press in when it comes to prayer. And, and this is important to realize because prayer is one of the most strategic activities in this age. Before the end of all things, prayer is one of the ways that we participate with God in what he's doing. There will come a day when it's no, no, no longer necessary to pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At the consummation, the restoration of all things, that will happen. But in this age, during these days, before the end of all things, God invites us to participate with him in establishing his kingdom and furthering his will in this world. And so he wants us to want what, we, what he wants so fervently that we cry out to him and we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so one of the core, core things we do is pray. We pour out our petitions to him. And Peter understood we will never be people of prayer 
unless we think rightly and clearly about these things. And of course, this way of thinking, this renewed mind, comes from meditating on Scripture day and night. We can't just dabble in it. It has to saturate our minds. We, we meditate day and night. We have spiritual conversations with one another. Uh, we think, we think uh, deeply about our lives and about our circumstances and about this world. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was part of a, a small group of people. We were praying for someone who was very, very dear to, to all of us. And uh, we, we decided we're going to set apart a day for prayer and fasting. We're going to pray specifically for this, this, uh, this person. And I like what Mark Batterson says about fasting, prayer and fasting. He said, if prayer is walking on a sidewalk, prayer and fasting is walking on a moving sidewalk. It gets you where you're going quicker. And so it, like, it, it accelerates your, your seeking God. And I have to say, when I woke up that morning, I had an intensity. I had a fervency. I had a resolve to pray that I don't often have. And, and it was a wonderful day. It was, a, it was a, a fruitful day in prayer. And in retrospect, I would look back and I would say that we were thinking rightly and clearly for the purpose of prayer. This coming week, there will be situations in your life. There will be people that you care deeply about. There will be circumstances that you hear about in this world that desperately need the work of God. That if God doesn't bear his holy arm and if his, his mighty arm and if he doesn't come in power, uh, incredible things will be lost. There, there, will be, there will be destruction. There will be great loss in human life. And so let it not be said of us, we do not have because we do not ask. But we're not going to ask, or at least we're not going to ask well unless our minds are clear, unless we're thinking rightly for the purpose of prayer. This week, uh, will you purpose in your heart to have that mind and pray in that way? Second, if we understand the end of all things is at hand, our lives will be characterized by love. And that's not surprising, is it? Uh, without trivializing the other commands in this passage, Peter says that, that love is above all. This is priority number one. He says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. When he says fervent, Fervently, he's talking about consistently. He's talking about unfailingly loving one another. It's to be our highest priority. And that's consistent with Jesus' teaching, right? There's two great commands, love God and love your neighbor. It's consistent with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. It's consistent with what John wrote in 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. So why does Peter say, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another? He says, well, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, our love for one another doesn't cover our sins the way the blood of Jesus covers our sin. And Peter certainly isn't say we should love each other and cover up each other's sins, hide each other's sins. There's too many scriptures that say, confess your sin to one another, uh, that say, admonish one another. And so he's not talking about hiding our sins. I think what Peter's doing here, he's making an allusion to Proverbs 10:12, which says, 
Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. And so it's a classic case of Hebrew parallelism in which a contrast is being made. And so hatred is contrasted to love, stirring up strife is contrasted with covering all transgressions. And so whereas hatred causes strife, if you hate somebody and you show hatred to somebody, it will cause dissension, it will cause bitter disputes, it will cause divisions. But if you love somebody, it does the opposite. Instead of magnifying the the fallout from somebody's sin, it minimizes the fallout of the other person's sin. And so uh, that's what Peter's urging us to do. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You and I have incredible power to minimize the relational fallout of the wrong things that other people do. And so this week, when, not if, but when somebody sins against you or you notice somebody's sins, you have a couple of different options. So on the one, one hand, uh, you, can, you can cause strife and you can magnify that person's sin. And so you, again, you've got a lot of options. We, we've, we've all done these things. So you can tell five other people what this person has said about you, how they've been unkind and unfair in what they've said. Uh, you can snub that person when you see them in the community or when you see them in the foyer or wherever. You can tell stories about that person in your mind over and over again. Whether they're true or not doesn't matter. You, you can just, just embed these things in your thinking to where you hold this grudge. You've got this death grip on this grudge. But as you know, people say it's, if you hold a grudge, it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's just that toxic. So that's one option. The other option is you could love this person fervently. And as Paul said, love is patient. You could be patient with this person. Love is kind. You could be kind. Uh, Love is not provoked. If you're easily angered by another person, that means you don't love them the way you should. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. So you could go to that person. You could say, hey, somebody told me that you said this about me. I just want to know, is that true? And if it's true, what did you mean by it? Why did you say that? And so that's, that's a loving way to, to go about it. You don't ignore it, but you exercise love. And there's no guarantees. Some people may reject that, and they may come back at you with full force. But it's possible that you will just nip that conflict in the bud, that that, that very quickly and very directly will address that issue. And it will minimize the relational fallout. And so love, love does that. Love is powerful. It covers a multitude of sins. Now, I realize that real life situations are often complicated, right? We don't experience other people's sins in a vacuum. Okay, so there's a lot, a lot more going on. Uh, and I realize there's other scriptures that generally need to be brought to bear in every situation. But... We dare not miss just the simplicity and the power of what Peter's saying. We have the opportunity, especially given what's at stake, we have the opportunity to minimize the fallout from other people's sins by fervently loving others from the heart. And so to do otherwise will compromise our unity, it will compromise our effectiveness as the body of Christ, it will compromise our witness as a church. 
Third, if we understand the end of all things is at hand, our lives will be characterized by hospitality. Again, you might think, okay, we're talking about the end times. Really? Hospitality? That should be on the list here. Well, this is what Peter says, verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. The word hospitality literally means love of strangers. And so if you show hospitality, you, you are in the process of moving someone from a stranger to a friend. Okay? And so sometimes in the, in the first century, hospitality involved inviting believers from other cities as they were traveling through to spend the night with you. You hosted them. Uh, hotels were few and far between. They were expensive. They were often places of immorality. And so it was just a, an important thing for Christians to welcome other Christians into their homes. Peter seems to, be, seems to have in mind something more local in this passage because he says, be hospitable to one another. It's a reciprocal thing. Uh, he, believers were to befriend each other from the heart, welcoming one another into their fellowship and into their lives. And so hospitality is a foundational quality in the body of Christ. I think it's really undervalued. And this is a vibe that we either give off or we don't. Instead of giving off the vibe that says, you, I could take you or leave you. Hospitality gives off this vibe, I welcome you into our fellowship. I welcome you into our lives. And that, that can look very different depending on who you are, your stage of life, your gifting, your circumstances, all sorts of things. I recently read an interview with uh, Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you know her. She's a, an author and a blogger. But she basically came to Christ through the hospitality of a family in her neighborhood. She was very antagonistic to Christianity and to Christians. She mocked and ridiculed Christians for what, what they believe. But there was this family in her neighborhood that basically said, I think it was Tuesday nights, if I'm not mistaken, every Tuesday night, our home's going to be open. You're welcome to join us for a meal and conversation. Okay? And again... I'm not putting this on everybody, but this example is compelling. And so they had their Christian friends come to their house. They had their non-Christians come to, to their house. And so after two years of, of uh, this, this type of hospitality, Rosaria Butterfield was, was won over by their love. And so the people that she mocked, the people that she ridiculed, loved her so well and welcomed her into their lives that she was one to Christ. And so it, it's pretty easy to reject a stereotype of Christianity, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's easy. It's, it's, so, it's harder to dismiss the power of a life of somebody who loves you no matter what who invites you into their home, lets you sit at, their, sit at your table, uh, let, lets, them, lets you sit at their table, lets you eat their food, who welcomes you into their lives. And so not surprisingly, uh, Rosaria Butterfield has deep convictions about hospitality. She's very eager to say this is not about doilies. This is not Southern hospitality. This is not entertaining. We're not talking about impressing people with our homes or with our, our menu or whatever. The point is to love strangers so that strangers become friends and some of those friends become brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, you noticed Peter makes an interesting qualification here, doesn't he? 
He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint, without grumbling, without murmuring. So he's anticipating that people do this hard work and take these risks and invite people into their lives and into their fellowship, and then they resent it. Maybe the hospitality is not reciprocated. Uh, Maybe these people mess up your carpet. Maybe they mess up your life. Maybe their, their lives are so messy, it just makes your life so much more complicated. And so Peter's saying, count the cost. It's going to be costly if you actually show Christian hospitality. But this is one of the core ways. Honestly, this is maybe the core way that we develop spiritual friendships in the body of Christ. And it's one of the core ways that we reach out to those who need Christ. So again, I'm tripping all over myself saying this. Not everybody is set up to show this type of hospitality in their home, but wherever you are, what if you just open your your arms a little wider? You just welcome people into your life and your fellowship a little more broadly and see what God does. This, This may be one of the core things God wants you to do in these days, in these last days. Well, the fourth thing, if we understand the end of all things is at hand, our lives will be characterized by servanthood. Notice in these verses how God-centered we're to think about serving others. Uh, God-centered understanding of our gifts and the use of our gifts. He says, as each one has received a special gift. So he agrees with Paul there, right? Every believer has a gift or sometimes a cluster of gifts. If you're a follower of Christ, God has given you some special spiritual aptitude, something you're effective at, something, some way he wants to use you. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It's interesting to note that in the New Testament, we're never commanded, figure out your spiritual gift. It's kind of assumed that that we will discern our spiritual gifts as we live in community with one another, as we serve one another. And so generally speaking, your gifting is, uh, is, is, it involves what you're good at and what you're motivated to do. And so ask yourself, how does God tend to use me and what am I motivated to do? If you have no idea what it is, ask somebody that knows you really well. Say, how does God, how do you see God using me in other people's lives? A lot of times it's very obvious to other people. And so if you, if you very naturally are, if you very naturally gravitate toward hurting people and you come alongside them and you spend time with them and you talk with them, and as a result, they experience the mercy of God. Chances are you have the gift of mercy. We're all supposed to be merciful, but some people have this aptitude to show mercy. It's a gift. Similar things could be said about teaching or administration or leadership or prophecy or serving, all all the different gifts. And Peter tells us that each of us should employ the gift we received in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold or the varied grace of God. It's if God says to the church, my grace is so nuanced, my grace is so so multifaceted that I'm not giving every one of you the same gift. Rather, I'm giving you individual gifts. I'm entrusting it to you. 
It's your stewardship. I'm entrusting it to you that will allow you to serve in unique ways. Together, you as a church will do what Christ would do if he were bodily present here. He's not. You are now the body of Christ. And so if you don't use your gift, there will be a lack. If you do use your gift, the body will be built up. Therefore, be good stewards. Take seriously the assignments that I've given you through your gifting. To illustrate what that means, look at verse 11. It gives a couple of examples. Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. So if you've been given speaking gifts, when you use those gifts, you're a good steward if you express the utterances, the teachings, the sayings, the words of God. And so the emphasis is you're not sharing primarily your own bright ideas. You are sharing the words of God. Now, your personality, your experiences, your, your insights will be involved, but the content is fundamentally what God has revealed. Whoever serves is to do so as one serving by the strength which God supplies. So if you've been given serving gifts, if you're, you're, your gifting involves serving others, you're a good steward of that gift if you serve by the strength which God supplies. And so God doesn't give you a gift and expect or want you to use your own strength. God says, I am with you. I dwell within you through the promised Holy Spirit. I will empower you. I will give you the strength. That way you'll be effective. That way you won't exalt yourself, but you will exalt me uh, to, by using the strength that I supply. So we speak God's message. We rely on God's strength so that in all things, God may be glorified. So his reputation, so that his fame grows, not our own. You don't want people walking away amazed at you. You want people walking away amazed at God. And as always, God is glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this week, you will have opportunities to use your gifting the gifting that God has given you. The question is, will you do it in a God-centered way? Will you do it for his glory? Will you speak God's words? Will you rely on the strength that God supplies? And if you do, if we do, again, th this, this uh, uh, promotes our unity and it promotes our effectiveness as the body of Christ. And so let me just remind you of the context. So, so we are living in the next to the last chapter of human history. The end of all things is near. It's at hand. We don't know how long that will be. But in these last days, we are to be people who excel when it comes to prayer, love, hospitality, and servanthood. And if we do, if these qualities and these these God-centered habits are embedded in our lives and in our fellowship. It will promote our unity, and we will experience God in our midst in new and profound ways. And our witness, and our witness will be powerful in this world and in our community. And so would you pray with me that God would lead us? And so again, the, the goal isn't just to understand this passage. The goal is to be doers of the word. What is God press, impressing upon you this week and in this stage of your life? 
Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be a people who embody these things. God, we, we thank you for the wisdom we find in Scripture, the clarity we find in Scripture. And God, we want to be people that live wisely in these days. We don't want to squander these days. Uh, day, each day is a gift. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to understand and be wise on how we live these days. We pray, God, that we would uh, practice these things in deep ways, in uh, life-changing ways, prayer, love, hospitality, and servanthood. And God, we pray this church would be healthy. We pray the body of Christ in Manhattan would be vibrant and healthy and that our witness would be compelling and powerful. And so God, lead us. Uh, what specifically do you want us to, to pursue this, this week? We look to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.